Hello, everyone, and welcome back to One on One with the Canon Podcast Show, brought to you by WCANRadio.com. And we thank you for being with us. And we have on the set for today our co host by the name of Eric J. Meadows. How are you today? I'm doing very, very good. You know, on this show today, we have a very special guest. Uh, her name is Cassandra McDonald, Dr. Cassandra McDonald. It's a real pleasure to have you here. We're going to talk about some social issues that take place. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I'm excited to be here and I'm ready to dive in. Okay. On today's program, we will talk about the political influence in reference to human trafficking. All of that and much more coming your way right here on One on One with the Canon podcast show right after this. Greetings. I'm Samuel Hampton II, producer at WCAN-TV. WCAN-TV is currently looking for quality programming for 30 to 60 minutes. If you have a message that you would like to share to the world, please contact me at 440-836-4591 or at tvwcan at yahoo.com. Thank you. Hello, my name is Shelly Mathis and I am CEO and founder of Shelly Mathis Counseling Services. We specialize in mental health, trauma, and also substance abuse with an expertise in depression and anxiety for individuals, groups, couples, marriage and families, and also child and adolescents. If you're in need of assistance, give us a call at 330-577-8548. Thank you. Hi, I'm Joseph with Power to Become, an executive director with the John Maxwell team, bringing transformational training around the globe, making a difference when it makes a difference. We want to connect with you. Go to power2become.org or .com and connect with us now. And since we're getting into the show, let's talk about this. You as a political stand, as a standard in East Cleveland. Why don't you tell us about yourself, doctor? Okay, so um, I am also a law and policy analyst. So a lot of my work is done in, in various areas, but uh, specifically for the show, I want to address the human trafficking uh, as it relates to urban communities. Well, can you break that title down for us? Laming people out here. Sure. What, what is that? So a, a law and policy analyst is actually someone who is able to look at different aspects of the laws, um, apply it to situations um, and circumstances that are going on, and come up with you know some type of uh, way to pretty much solve things, right? So we look at policy. I, I look at law. Look at uh, moral culpability, legal culpabilities of those things, and then summarize it and put it into um, a plan and/or a policy and procedure. Is this a position that phases with the you know actual local government or is this a private organization that does this and makes suggestion to the local government? So so we do it all. So I've been working with various um, municipalities throughout Cuyahoga County. I've done it in educational systems. I've done it in organizations. So this is a, a multi-service type of um, in profession. So you have no limitations? No limitations. You can go anywhere 50 Anywhere. States. That's oh, good. Okay, that's good. Mm -hmm. That's, that's good. good. Nobody can put a muzzle on you then. That's right. No. Yeah, that's really good. Now, as a so, uh, civil rights advocate, tell us about your work. Okay. So, yeah. So, I, I think for me, uh, since I was a 
a small child, I was always interested in civil rights from the uh, Malcolm X to Martin Luther King to the Black Panthers and so forth. You know, I was always wondering uh, why things were the way that they were. So I, you know, when I grew up, I got into um, political science. I got into uh, human rights, you know, activism, and I became a civil rights activist. And from that, I was able to found the second only NAACP branch in Cuyahoga County, the first to be in Euclid, um, Euclid, Ohio. And I'm actually the first African-American female to do that. So I made history by founding the Euclid NAACP. Are you still active? Yes, we're still active. Um, you know, however, there were some things that I guess when I looked at what I really wanted to do with civil rights in terms of creating legislation and looking at the legislation, I decided to come from under the Euclid NAACP for what it used to stand for, which is the National um, Association and Advisory Council on Policymaking. That's what we are now um, instead of the traditional NAACP. So in actuality, I founded two organizations that were works with civil rights. That's good. Yes. That's really good. You know, uh, I wanted to talk about your being orchestrated, uh, you know, an instrument in repealing laws that were on the books that promoted discrimination. Let's talk about that. Okay, so one just happened recently in the city of Euclid, Ohio. There was a law on the books that was discriminatory towards um, anyone who had a they were, you know, um, ex-felons. Okay. So in the city of Euclid, and if you know anything about the city of Euclid, they already have a problem with police brutality, racial discrimination, and things of that nature. So the law that they had on the books was that anyone with a, a felony, a former felony, you would have to register with the city your whereabout. When you look at the population and it is over approximately 60% black, then you have uh, maybe 30% Caucasian and on down. Within itself, the law was discriminatory. And when you looked at it with the state law, the only requirements for anyone to, you know, say that, hey, I'm a resident here is someone who was convicted of a sex crime and or arson. Mm -hmm. So there was no statutory law that said anybody that was ex-felon had to register within the municipality, even if it was, if it was home rule. So long story short, I was able to um, get legislation passed. Actually, they repealed the whole law off of the book. So Euclid doesn't have to worry about that anymore. How long had that law been on the book? I got one question for you answer that. Sure. What political affiliation were you with? Were you... A... I just do this. Oh, you just do I it? I just okay, do okay, it. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, so, um, so, um, I'm sorry, what what was your question? My question me? was, how long were these discriminatory laws oh, on the books? That that law had been there since, I believe, 1953. Don't quote me approximately, but about 1953. And I think people need to understand the significance that even if they don't use it, they can use it at any time. And so you need to get that there. off of yes, there because yes. when they want to, they can enforce it. You, you so know, we had a, to get it off. It's the same thing like, uh, uh, I believe there are at least 13 southern states that still have lynching as a legal form of punishment yeah, by the masses. Right. Yeah, that are still there. They haven't got that off the books. Yes. Yeah, so so it's great that you're, you know, putting yourself out there to identify these and then bringing it to the public and then doing something about getting it actually off the books. Yes, sir. Thank you. You know, uh, another thing I had noticed when I was doing some research on you is that you worked with making sure that Euclid Police or East Cleveland Police 
were wearing body cameras. Yes, sir. Tell us about that. All right. That had to be an uphill struggle. It it truly, it truly was. Um, I got a lot of pushback. And I I think that came about with, if you're familiar with the Richard Hubbard incident and um, the Luke Stewart incident, that all happened in the city of Euclid. Uh, Luke Stewart was the young man that was gunned down in a car. Um, Richard uh, Hubbard was beaten in the streets. Right. And um, so I was active in in those cases as well. Um, So there was a lot of talk about what was available as far as evidence. Was body cameras on? Were they off? So forth. So Euclid didn't require their officers to have body cams. The officers had would if they can buy them if they wanted to, but they didn't have to purchase them. You know, you know, and, and let me just say this: there mm-hmm. are a lot of uh, municipalities across the nation yes. that do not require. You know, we hear about it getting body cams, but they do not require it. They, they do not make it a don't. mandatory piece of equipment. They don't, and and that's that. Well, this is why the issue. public has to film. Yes, that's why we have to film. We have to right. film this. And so, right, and so in addition to the public filming, because that that's very important now with the um, the law that they have now um, that I have to give some credit to um, Councilman Marcus Epps and Councilwoman uh, Stavana Cavanis and some others who helped support the legislation that I wrote to get the cameras there. I want people to understand the significance, though, of the cameras because you can have cameras, but what's the significance? Well, these particular cameras are, um, they're activated by motion of other police officers. So... It, what do you mean? Like if uh, a police officer moves into yeah, the field. absolutely. So let's say you're um, you're chasing a suspect or something, and, and your camera malfunctions. Well, any officer around you can turn yours on. So there is you, the credit. You know, it takes away that issue of credibility and accountability because they should not be off because you had several other officers there, and everybody should be acting at one time. So it's motion sensors. So it's motions, pretty much motion. Yeah. Um, and thereby axum. Well, there's another problem in the uh, East Cleveland area, Mm -hmm. the rehiring of already dismissed police officers. I believe you made comment on that about a year year and a half ago. Yes. About people that were actually proven to be bad officers Mm -hmm. were dismissed and later on turned around and rehired again. Mm -hmm. How did something like that happen? That that goes back in time with the Supreme Court and the legislation surrounding arbitration. Um, and arbitration has been a thing that has kept um, rogue officers, you know, um, hired. The problem that we face is there is no Supreme Court case really that sets precedents as to what we can use to terminate an officer. So we go back into this thing because they have what's called qualified immunity. However, in doing some research, I found that there are um, two specific things that they look for in order for an officer to Before you go much further, Mm -hmm. explain to our listeners what qualified immunity is. Qualified immunity is that an officer uh, cannot be terminated for certain acts such as, you know, um, police shootings and so forth. Even if he's at fault. Exactly, because there's a component, is is a, a legal term called mens reas, and that's the state of mind at the time the shooting occurs. So if officers are already trained to shoot and kill, how can you get past that they really had a guilty mind? But why are they being prosecuted right now? They can, they can be prosecuted because there are things that say as beyond a reasonable doubt or by the okay. preponderance of evidence that we have enough to charge them. There, that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, right. but we can charge them, but qualified immunity protects them. And the only way that they get convicted 
convicted if it's so egregious, if right. it's so bad that they exempt themselves from qualified immunity because they know, they know for sure that they committed the act maliciously and other things and like that. And that's what's happening right now. So that's what's happening. Right. And a good example of this is George, George Floyd killing. Absolutely. Right. You know, but there were also cameras that were by the, from the civilian population yes. that were actually filming yes. this. So this is why he got convicted. And I, I still mm-hmm. think he should have gotten more time. But yeah. moving on, <laughs> let's talk about law enforcement as far as child abduction. Trafficking, human trafficking. What's happening in the courts nowadays? So the the courts, I, I think they're they're coming around to more programming, um, safe harboring for you know our children. But I I think they're still very dysfunctional in the way that we have to look at how we protect our children politically because a lot of times human trafficking cannot move across state lines and different things like that without some other influence besides a regular person. And I think that um, in, you know, when we look at it more in depth and we look at the money that human trafficking and that's brings what I was going to go to next. Right. When you look at the money, when you look at those things, um, you, you have to know that there is a larger entity that plays into human trafficking. And that's where we have to start going. So give me an example. What is, give me an example of that, the larger part of that. Um, so Let's say, for instance, when we have, uh, let's say the city of Cleveland had the basketball championship or we had the RNC, the Republican National Convention, and we're bringing in all of these, you know, um, major hitters. Right. And and we know, um, just to put it bluntly, we know there is a lot of Hugh Hefners inside of these True. organizations. Right. Um, we know that people we have teenagers and young adults and individuals that work in these arenas when these individuals come. We know that they have influence to bring bring people in even by just money. Hey, I want to have a couple of girls over, a couple of guys over for a party this evening. One thing leads to another. Here's the here's the influence of drugs. Here's the influence of so alcohol. Supply here's and the demand. So supply and demand. Exactly. And, and a lot of that, that's how human trafficking really occurs. Supply and demand. Who needs what, where, the entertainment, you know, all of those things come into play. Now, you say that uh, 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 law enforcement is actually waking up to this. Are they doing something to train their officers what to know, what to look Mm -hmm. for, how to pursue it? Yeah, I think um, now definitely they're they're getting more involved with... um you know, this because I believe that people have forced that agenda, right? Uh, especially when it comes to our missing and exploited children, and we're finding a lot of them um, being in human trafficking. We start looking at our the priests in the Catholic ch- churches. You know, as much as they may not want to say it, they are human trafficking as well. So yes, their law enforcement is now taking a look at that, but my thing is the aggressiveness of catching perpetrators needs to occur. Okay, and what do you mean by Aggressiveness. Aggressiveness. we talked about that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he, here's the thing. The, these laws are very fundamental, so to speak, right? Yes. So we, we have to have, let's look at punishment from a different perspective. You know, there's uh, re- retributive justice, right? Meaning that whatever they are sentenced to should match the crime. We're seeing people just get off. 
It's too late. Well, yeah, that, 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 that's too one of the, it's one of the things I, I'm seeing. That's right. what I said. As long as you've got the money and got a good lawyer, you can, you're you getting can, off. You can get off, right? And in the meantime, these young adults or these children, even adults who are trapped into human trafficking, have lifetimes of psychological and emotional you know, issues because of that. But that can't even be addressed if the courts are not, don't have the teeth, you know, to go ahead and and, pursue that. And that goes to the punishment does not fit the crime because these individuals live this for a lifetime when they get slapped on a wrist. And your economic status should not exempt you from appropriate punishment. As as Harriet talked about, it's a big money uh, yes, it is. Let That's what me it is. ask you about this thing, mm-hmm. because as you said, your economic status, mm-hmm. since a lot of these people that are being trafficked are coming from middle to low income mm-hmm. areas, low social groups that the courts really don't look at when they end up in this situation and they grab the person who's the perpetrator mm-hmm. who's caused this to happen. If he's got enough money, what are the courts doing knowing What's happening? They know what's happening. So that's that's threefold. Courts have all, always known that there was something going on that was wrong in lower um, lower economic communities, uh, communities communities with lower educational statuses. They've known that a lot of times they you know our courts and our systems perpetuate things like that, mm-hmm. and they've always turned a blind eye to it because hey, that's how it is in the ghetto. We're going to leave oh, it that way, right? Ghetto. Right? That's how they look at it. That's 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 how it is. Then, then, so, yeah, so they don't turn attention to it. Now, when, um, let's say, the human trafficking occurs, right, and it occurs because they've already set up the conditions for these children and families to be that way. Here's the human trafficker offering them Here's money for this. Here's money for that. Here's money for that. So now I'm going to pull you in. Okay, this trafficker gets caught and they go to court. Now the trafficker is going to say, well, no, they they knew that, you know, this was going on. I didn't take advantage of them. They asked me for favor. They They say they volunteer. volunteer. And then now the courts are looking at it like. But but can they call it consent when you're dealing with a child? They can't. They can't call it consent, but it's the psychology behind the black child and their family. I think that's what it is. It's a psychology. We love our children just like any other race. That's true. The fact of the matter is, is that we are always put in the back when it comes to justice, when it comes to rights, when it comes to things like that. We are, our agenda is never set. It's never first. Let me ask you this, Mm -hmm. not to detract from this issue, Mm -hmm. but when we look at culture and we look at the the redlining that goes on in certain neighborhoods and we look at the ARCO recycling thing that took place back in yes. 2011. Mm-hmm. There was $30 million that they were ordered to pay. And yet we see there only, what, seventy, eighty thousand dollars mm-hmm. went to the families, the immediate families that were in that immediate area. How do we catch up? How do we get to a point where we say enough is enough, and if you're going to do this, $30 million isn't going to settle this? Let, let me tell you something. I was one of the first people who did a news conference on that mm-hmm. dump site over there. Yes. And the problem is not just ARCO. The problem was the elected officials who let that crap come into the community in the first place. And these same elected officials that let the uh, child trafficking or the human trafficking continue? You know, pretty much they're one and the same. Now, do we have good officials in there? Yes, because it's it's hard. It's hard because you're fighting up against uh, against a lot of corruption. And I'm going to call it what it is. The the problem is ARCO couldn't have come in there and done anything if that council said, no, I don't want you here. 
or yes, you can be here, but under these conditions. It's no different than having legislation and ordinances that says if you want a liquor store right there, you have to close it this time, you have to do this, A, B, C, or D, else we're going to shut it down. Well, well the council had agreed to actually ARCO coming they, in there and dumping agreed. a specific uh, garbage or, or waste so, there. So, but then they took advantage of it. No, they didn't take advantage. They didn't take advantage. When the city council in East Cleveland, because it was Mayor Norton, I was, I was also one of the first people to do a recall on him. So the problem was is that, number one, when they brought it in, why would ARCO... Why would ARCO refrain from doing anything if legislation never set parameters for them not to do it, right? So there was nothing to, t to legally say they couldn't do certain things. So the, the type of waste that they were allowed to dump and them dumping that plus more, or, or you're saying that's, that, that wasn't on the books so, to, to protect that neighborhood? So, so this is what the waste was, and I think I want to clarify what the waste is. The waste could be a, a um, demolished home. But the, the paint and the chemicals that emitted off of the paint and the fumes going into the air were toxic. You talk about the, um, you know, the other materials that are in the brick at the time when the building was built. Was it asbestos? Was it this? Was it that? We talk about the fiberglass that's in the air. So those are all different types of material. So it's not necessarily that they dumped illegal material, but when you dispose of it, how are you disposing of it? And why would you keep it in this community without the proper measures to protect the air quality? How did they answer that? I mean, with 72000 paid out to, what, 20, 30 different families, you're, you're talking about less than $2,300 per, per household. So I don't even think that it actually um, got paid that much because I remember going to court. I remember going to court and I was, we were waiting for this particular family. Um, it was actually four of them who were supposed to show up and this was about the settlement. What people don't know is that those four people didn't come to court. And so I said, I said, bingo, they're, they're allegedly they had to be paid off. I said, we've come this far. Why aren't they here? And it kind of just started fading away. Well, let me ask you yes, mm -hmm. this. Okay, the problem's still there. The We've got ARCO recycling. Mm -hmm. They're still there. They're gone. Well, they're gone now. Mm -hmm. But well, you were talking about uh, what I believe a seven-year fight in trying to not only regulate this, but to get them out of there. Mm -hmm. uh, you still have health defects that are happening within the community. That's right. Has any reparations, that $30 million that was supposed to have been paid, has it gone towards to anything to restore the area? If So East Cleveland in itself is another show. And I'm just going to be honest. The The problem is that so it, and if you've looked at the news recently, there's been um, a lot of information put out there that the money from the CARES Act and the stimulus and to go to different um, people, that it is not being spent the way that it should, um, that is being favored over certain people versus the other. So it, it all goes back to when East Cleveland was first put into uh, fiscal emergency because of misappropriation of funds and these things. So in as much as they take two steps forward, they go five steps backwards, right? So what hope have we got towards the courts being able to have teeth to, to stop the 
human trafficking that's going on, not just in East Cleveland, but throughout all of Northern <laughs> courts, Ohio. It, you know what? It's, it's not. So the courts is there for punishment. What you want to find out is where is our FBI, our human trafficking task force? Our Don't we advocates? have them? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So before we even get to the courts, let's get the people out there to start bringing these cases to the courts so that the judges can do their due diligence in putting these individuals behind bars. So we need better legislation. We need better legislation. We don't have it. It's too lenient, like we it's said too earlier. Lenient. Yes. It's too lenient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to ask you a question, and, and I'm hoping I'm not putting you on the spot. What's your feeling on defunding the police? The present status quo is there. What's your feeling on that? Um, I don't, I don't, the terminology is going to kill it. Because when you talk about defunding, because anytime you're, you, to me, when you have, um, a group of individuals, rightfully so, because I stand on this side where it's police brutality. I've witnessed people getting murdered. I've seen rogue officers. I'm out in the thick of it. So I'm on that side, right? So I know that there needs to be something done. Now, if I'm saying I want to defund the police, economically, how do I punish them but keep us safe? How do you? Okay. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to. It won't work. It goes back to. So, but I this. So this is some other legislation that I wrote for the city of Euclid because defunding can also be a matter of let's rearrange how the dollars are flowing. And that's how it should be. So, so yep. So this but, is. Wait, what, wait a minute. Let me break in. They're going to use that to actually limit police officers. So no. Let me let me give you an example. So. When I looked at um, the city's charter and I started looking at how funds were spent and how funds were set aside for different things, right? So I said, here, here's the problem. If officers are, let's say, on the force for 25 years or whatever, whatever time they want to retire, and say that there is an officer who has been disciplined more than several times, they're, they're a problem. But at the end of their, um, when it's time for them to retire, they have $50,000 sitting on the side and they can just get it. I'm cutting into that based off of a merit system. And I'm going to take that and implement it into other areas to help the community or have programming. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have set aside funds for liability in case of police brutality. Right, right. You don't wait on the end of that. You chop that some of that liability money up and you put that on the forefront to keep your officers from doing it. Why would I wait till I get a lawsuit True. to use it? I'm going to take that money from this pot and put it here as a preventative measure. Okay. So it's not necessarily defunding, it's being smart with the way the money is being spent. Yeah, well, with the uh, uh, new police that are coming online, and I know time is running short, mm-hmm. but with the new police that are coming online, what type of training are they presently getting when we're talking about uh, human trafficking? Trafficking, where we got drug addiction, we've got police brutality. What is the level of training that they're getting nowadays? Is anybody so it's, 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 it's different for different things. I'm excited about the human trafficking part that they're getting. And I think for the most part, people want to protect kids and things like that. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, when it comes to the other training for police officers, I'm going to tell you something. And I, ha- I developed a program, and it's actually in Georgia that I, I try, that I'm trying. And it's called CBT Management, which is kind Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Management, which gets to the core belief systems of a person. You can put a blue uniform on, a, a orange or green, but your core belief systems, I don't care who you are, your real core beliefs are going to come out sooner or later. Yes. So what I would like to do is have a prerequisite course that before you even apply to the academy, you have to do this course called uh, CBT. 
And what it does is I challenge your thinking distortions, your thinking patterns, and so forth, because I look at how you respond immediately. You know what? So, they, they had a test like that with the Highway Patrol called the employment or uh, oldest employment test. Yeah. It was a very long test. And it was very repetitious. Worked, yeah. It, it was repetitious. It, it, that's right, because you, it's alternative thinking yes. processes. So when I, because I worked in a, um, a mid-security prison, and I had 133 males on my caseload. So this is what I was trying. This is what I did as a therapist with them. And I'm going, wait a minute. This can be used in multi-discipline, everything from educational systems, because we are not in touch with emotions. So so, so are we talking about rehabilitating the police it's, it's, or, it's, or actually getting a whole different it's, type it's, of police? A whole different it's type a whole of police. different type, type of police, police officer. Okay, let, can we, let me break in. When I took my test for the Highway Patrol, it's called the or, Oldest Employment Test. It was like 600 questions. What they want to see is repetition. So they might ask you, what would you like to do? Uh, go fishing, get a million dollars, or take a nap? You're going to say million dollars. That'll come up probably another other 45 questions see, later. But this oh, is a little different, see, though. They won't see how, how stable you were. This is different, though, because if I, let's say, for instance, it has, it's a thing called thinking distortions, thinking patterns, and tactics. You have your overgeneralizers, your maximizers, minimizers, justifiers, all these different types of personalities, right? Then you have your thinking patterns. You do this when, your stances, your victim stances, so forth, and then you have your tactics. How do you use that? How do you manipulate things with that? So I'll give you a scenario and I say, okay, so give me an event when you were pulled over by the police. What was the first thing came to your head? Dr. Sandra, I have to break in oh, here. Oh, go ahead. You know why? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because the old clock on the wall said it's that's all. Okay. We're going to have to revisit this. We're going to do that, okay? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're going to give you five remarks real quick. Oh, okay. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. All right. So um, I just wanted to, you know, thank you all for having me on the show. Um, I'm very delighted. I, I hope to come back. You know, it, it's so much to talk about. You know, th- this was this was awesome. So I appreciate being the guest. Well, we're going to get you back, mm-hmm. okay? All right. Uh, listen, for those out there, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at canonpodcast at yahoo.com, and we will get back with you with any questions, comments, or concerns. Until next time, take care of yourself and one another.